I'm Caleb Rowe, and this is the Air of Grievances podcast. For today's episode, um, do things a little bit different. I thought that I might uh, go through some scripture, and uh, I don't know if I'd call it a you know a sermon or a, or a talk in Revolution Church's terms, but um, yeah, I've just been dealing with a lot of stress here recently, mostly around financial issues. And I uh, earlier today, I just I was at my wit's end and. Having a little bit of a breakdown. I didn't quite have a panic attack, but I got awful close. And I just prayed and I prayed. You know, I said, God, whoever you are, whatever you are, you know, love, show yourself to me. I feel like my connection to you has been severed and, and cut off. And something that Jay said in my interview with him about how Christ came to remind us about how. We've lost that connection with the divine. And I feel like I relate with that, and that's kind of a place that I've been at. And Though I have a desire to know and fellowship with the ground of being, I I don't put in the effort that I should. And there's some hypocrisy in that, and that's on me. And it's hard not to be discouraged. It's hard not to get anxious. Uh, but I found... Some scriptures kind of encouraging. Uh, And they're in Luke, which honestly isn't my very favorite of the Gospels or of the New Testament, but there's a lot of good stuff in there, a lot of great parables. Um, I think a lot of insight into Christ. Um, So in Luke 12, um, when Christ is speaking to his followers about the Pharisees, And in my mind, honestly, the Pharisees kind of parallel the religious fundamentalists, the ones who are works-based and performance-based and maybe lose sight of the essential nature and the powerful, powerful healing potential of grace. And so in Luke 12 says, uh, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people who had gathered together that they were trampling one another. So Christ has all these, you know, he's, he's gained in popularity. People are hearing about all of his miracles and he's gaining a following, which is interesting because it's kind of despite his uh, trying, trying to temper that, his trying to tell people, you know, don't go and tell what I've done for you after he heals, you know lepers and uh, cast out demons. He says, don't go and tell anyone what I've done for you. But then, of course, people do go and run their mouths off and, and uh, share this amazing, you know, miracle that's happened to them. And so, you know, he's gaining a lot of popularity. And so a crowd gathers and they're trampling over one another. And he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And of course, leaven, uh, you know, refers to in baking. Um, it, it bolsters. It um, it kind of plumps up and, and gives girth, I guess, for lack of better terms, to the bread. You know, unleavened bread is more like a cracker. Leavened bread is, you know, more like fluffy, uh, you know, big 
kind of what we think of when we think of a loaf of bread. So, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. So the thing that bolsters them, the thing that that maybe gives them their pompous, uh, inflated attitude, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So, if the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy, then it seems really clear to me here that he's saying that they have a practice of, you know, presenting one facade, presenting one face, one demeanor, one one outward projection of their character uh, while in secret, you know, not living up to those standards or not being consistent in maintaining what they're projecting. And then he goes on to say, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you to fear he who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Or uh, the original word there is, is Gehenna, which is the valley I think I've mentioned before where uh, kings would actually send their own children to be sacrificed. This is a negative place. And if we were to draw, you know, there are many parallels you could draw, but perhaps one parallel you could draw would say king, you know, maybe being God, sending his children, you know, um, us, to be tortured and I think like burned alive and that sounds an awful lot like the modern conception of hell, but it's not presented in a just way. It's presented in a perverse, despicable way. And so I find that kind of interesting, that maybe, maybe we have a misunderstanding of hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear the one who has the authority to cast you into hell. And I wonder, too, is, is it a qualifier that after you've killed someone, now you have the authority to cast someone into hell? That just that seems confusing to me, honestly. I, I genuinely don't understand that one. Um, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are more valuable than sparrows. So have no fear, because in the big picture, God the ground of being, the source, the subject is in control and is manipulating the circumstances around us favorably in the long run, maybe not in the instant gratification sense of it. And it goes on, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, who by our our best guess is Jesus, will be forgiven. Wow. That's awful inclusive. Everyone who speaks a word against Jesus will be forgiven. 
but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I admittedly don't understand that one fully either. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable. Love his parables. My favorite greatest hits from Christ are his parables for me. Uh, Saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. So, you know, you're going to die. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich. So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So that's kind of that reoccurring theme of materialism. Well, well, materialism in the sense of putting weight and value, ultimate value in possessions as ultimately being meaningless. And I really like this next part. He says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. And God, that's one that I need to hear right now because I've just been wrought with anxiety like I've never have been before. In the past, when I was, you know, suicidal and things like that, but my anxiety here recently has just been, honestly, overwhelming, crippling. But he says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, this is a popular verse, they neither sow nor reap, They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And then you are not able to do a small thing as that? Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the fields today and tomorrow and is thrown in the oven, so, you know, a short-lived life, uh, what we might call an insignificant existence, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not speak what you and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Man, that's a hard one. Do not fret over and he's saying do not seek, do not even go out of your way to acquire 
the things that you will eat or drink. And to not even be worried about it. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So here's that reoccurring theme that Christ always comes back to about not putting weight and fret and stress in the acquisition of these material things, but in the metaphysical, in the spiritual, in the, in the kingdom, which I'm coming to believe more and more is more of a mindset than a location. And later in Luke, I think that that perspective is supported in Luke 17, starting with verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, not will be in the midst of you, not can be in the midst of you. It is in the midst of you. I think that is just a really, really powerful one. And then he goes on to give some very, very powerful parables that I'd like to visit. In Luke 15, it says, The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And of course, we know that these are the people that the Pharisees were most upset about Jesus spending time with and showing love to loving on and being accepting and inclusive of. So they're drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And the that last phrase, the righteous persons who need no repentance, almost sounds to me like, you know, people who have worked their way into God's favor. But I wonder if maybe... Instead, it's saying, you know, people who are already living in love, living in Christ, living in God by righteous people. And it also makes me wonder if maybe you don't need a, a, a card or a, a ticked off box, a, a ticket into heaven, but rather how you treat and love people is that qualifier, you know, if, if that's how things work. Just speculation. And again, I'm I'm still forming my more solid standpoints and beliefs on, on all these sorts of things as far as, you know, justification and, and things like that. And he goes on with sort of a parallel parable saying, What woman, 
having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and diligently seek until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And that one I understand, honestly, a little bit better than the parable of the lost sheep, uh, just because those coins, those other nine coins aren't going anywhere. You know, they're, they're safe and she's going off to, uh, you know, to find the one uh, inanimate object that she lost, the, which, of course, I believe parallels the soul that is not living in love. And I have to say, with the previous parable, the lost sheep, I am a little bit confused. And may, this is probably very well likely a cultural thing. I don't understand how if you leave 99 sheep, because one ran away. If, if sheep are going to run away, I don't know how those 99 are just going to be chilling when you get back. But I'm sure that's just semantics and, and not, not the point of the story. And then this next parable that he tells, and I love how he just goes from one into the next. And they're all parallel. They're all telling the same moral of the story. And this one really drives home most for me, just especially because of my family relationships and all the love that my parents have shown me. And before I started praying today, I had the thought, why is it that my parents show me such unconditional love? And when I'm in a financial bind, they just give to me more than I know they can even afford. And, and they help me out without any set deadlines of when I have to pay them back and this and that. And it's because they believe in a loving God. And maybe not, in the semantics of it, maybe not to the exact extent that I do. I'm a bit, quite a bit more inclusivist. Um, I have some uh, universalist leanings. I would say I'm more inclusivist than universalist, though. I, like I've said before, I do understand how there may need to be a period in which a soul has to endure the hardships that they put onto others and have those reciprocated back to them before they can be reconciled and in the presence of God. And I don't want to say this as any sort of an assertment or, you know, a, a doctrinal claim or anything like that, but I am curious if maybe that's where the, the Catholicism belief in purgatory comes in is that maybe that's the time where we reconcile those who we have done wrong. And maybe we are even literally, you know, metaphysically on, on the receiving end of all of the mistreatments that we have dealt out through our lives and we experience how much we hurt those around us. And if you experience that, I just don't see unless, you know, I don't know, unless you're in some sort of a mental uh, handicap or something like that, I don't see how you could not come to full repentance and to full faith in accepting the love and the forgiveness and the acceptance provided to us 
through our divine, loving, just being in the afterlife. I don't want to say the kingdom because I feel like the kingdom is is a, is a mindset, just just like in that uh, previous passage when Christ was saying that the kingdom is here and is now. But the parable of the prodigal son is, is what this is normally uh, most popularly known as. He said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Kind of sounds like me going to Minnesota. And there he squandered all his property in reckless living. Can't say I've been the wisest with my financial decisions either. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and began to be in need. I can relate with that one too, as I have recently lost my car and I'm kind of on the fence as to whether or not how my employment is going to be panning out in my financial situations and things like that. It's kind of a, a financial famine, as it were. But a famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with, the hung- with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. This is all this guilt. This, you know, probably just guilt that I am just right in the middle of right now. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. And that was a big deal. The fattened calf. I think we, I may be incorrect about this, but it was like a, like a four year process to prepare that, that fattened calf. And there's a lot of labor and very, very specific regulations that go into uh, preparing that fattened calf. But, uh, I may need to do a little bit more research to be 100% on that, but just speculation there. Um, the father says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these festivities meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, 
These many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And of course, a young goat is nothing compared to a fattened calf. But when this son of yours came, who has been devouring your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, the father said, You son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he is found. And again, that's just such a powerful, powerful message to me personally. Right now, dealing with, it's honestly, guys, it's kind of a shit show. It's just me trying to get my transportation worked out again so that I can secure a job or resecure one of my jobs. They can't wait around for me forever to get my vehicle worked out. Of course, I got Lyft and Uber, but that stuff ain't cheap. That's like 50 bucks a day going there and back. And I'm just, I am overwhelmed. And that's that's why I chose to reach out to love, to reach out to the Father, to reach out to the ideal of God. I realized my parents, no matter what disagreements we may have, they do all that they do for me for love, for God. And that just reaffirms and strengthens my belief that God is the force of love. Cognizant or not, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I believe Christ is the cognizant incarnation of God. But like I said with Jay, like we kind of concluded, God's not a man in the sky, but Jesus is a man. And so maybe that's where that bridge is kind of gapped. I'm going to continue on here just a little bit longer um, with another parable that Jesus dives straight right into. He also said to the disciples, there was a young rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to the manager that this rich young man was wasting his possessions. And so the manager called the rich young man and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn into the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm no longer strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Sound familiar? I'm, I'm unqualified to work outside of the field, you know, uh, the economic field that I've been trained in, you know, through, through college and technical schools and things like that. So I am not strong enough to dig, not, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred merits of oil. The rich man said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write out 50. So he's, he's kind of cutting him a deal. He's, uh, 
He's saying, pay off the 50 now and we'll kind of forget about the whole thing. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Same sort of thing. Cutting you a deal so that you can kind of get out of this debt. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That's an interesting sentence. Christ is saying, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, which can also be translated unrighteous money, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now talk about esoteric. I'm not sure where that one's going, I'll be honest. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in very much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. I think that that, that goes a long way. I know that uh, if there is a, a negative habit, a negative tendency in your life, say cheating people, or practicing infidelity outside of your marriage, then if you are committing these things, then you're going to be extra suspicious to try to see them in in other people. He goes on, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you the true riches? If you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he either has to hate one, love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And that calls back to the whole, you know, the ravens that and the grass that Christ, that God takes care of and is concerned about and uh, supplies for and is on his radar, you know, just the same radar that that we're on. Maybe not to the same extent, but, you know, the the same radar, the same concern to varying degrees. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, and I don't want to point fingers too much, but I think you can draw some parallels there with mega churches. You know, um, where it's all about the money and the facility and, uh, you know, we need more tithing, we need more money so we can build a new altar, we can expand our facilities. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it, which is a very interesting passage there. Another translation is, uh, or everyone is forcefully urged into it. So I don't know if it's them pushing themselves into it or someone pushing them into it. 
But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to be void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And I know that in evangelical circles, this is taken very, very literally. And I'm not putting my foot down and saying that that is absolutely incorrect. But I would like to posit that perhaps this is another metaphor. You know, it's directly after the reference of serving two masters. And so I feel it could be a parable or or a metaphor saying, whoever divorces his wife or his master and marries another or commits to another master is committing infidelity. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And I think that's kind of the same, the same message that we can't serve both two masters at the same time, that we can't serve both God and money. And in today's day and age, guys, I don't know how to navigate that. Obviously, you know, John the Baptist, he was a homeless guy. So is Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. And he was homeless, didn't have a a place to rest his head. And yet, we make our lives miserable and the lives of our families miserable if we don't have a steady income to sustain ourselves. We can't provide for our children and for our families. So yeah, maybe the system is screwed up and maybe that's what we need to look at. But I think the first place we need to start is with our spiritual understanding and true comprehension of what Christ is saying here. Lastly, I would like to visit uh, one more passage from Luke. Uh, This one is a little bit off topic, but I feel like throwing it in there just because of my passion and my love for working with children. That is honestly the greatest passion in my life. And it's a familiar verse, Luke 18, 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, belongs this mindset of inclusive love. All are accepted. And with children, sometimes we associate a naivety, a trusting mindset that may not have been earned. And we see that maybe as dangerous. And it is dangerous, you know, with the predators and things like that around. But but that mindset in and of itself, despite the applications and the evil, evil people who take advantage of and, and, and miscue these things and, and, yeah, just take advantage of the innocence and naivety of children. But he says, Let them come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs 
the kingdom of God. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And just to kind of put a cherry on top of this one, I'm going to go back to chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, that cannot be this grand gesture of uh, a descent from the heavens, from the skies, from outer space. This big climactic event. It is not coming in those ways. Nor will they say, look, here it is. It's falling out of the sky. Or there, look. For behold, you guys, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Just as it is in the midst of of the children and the hearts of those that reflect the inclusive, open, loving, unjaded mindset and worldview of children. I know I said I was going to wrap it up there, but I feel like I just have one more that I'd like to lay on you. Um, Going back to where I left off just a, a second ago, Luke 18, verse 18. And a rich young ruler came to him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do I need to say the Lord's Prayer? Do I need to go to church X number of times? Do I need to evangelize to X number of people? Do I need to convert X number of people? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And is Jesus saying there that he is not God alone? I don't want to be contrarian or anything like that, but I'm just trying to read it, read the text as it is written. And Christ explicitly says that no one is good but God alone, which seems to eliminate him. From that category. I don't know. Something to think about. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. This is what the young ruler is saying. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing You still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was really rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, he said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That's a tall order, you guys. That's pert near impossible. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? That's what I was saying. That's my reaction. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So there is hope. It's not that All wealthy people are just point-blank 
no questions asked, rejected, from entering into the mindset of love, of God, of inclusion, of the kingdom of God. See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, in the age to come of eternal life. Perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere so they might catch him in something that he said so as to deliver him to the authority and justification of the governor. And of course, this is while the Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting Jesus' demise. So that they might catch him in something that he said as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the government. So yeah, there you go. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak the truth rightly and show no partiality. Wow, no partiality. And the Greek there is, and do not receive a face. Which uh, I'm I'm not exactly sure what that means, but uh, a little bit of insight there. So, yeah, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that might catch him in something he said as to deliver him up to the authorities and jurisdiction of the governor, of the, the politicians, the government. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. It is lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar, is it not? But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a Daenerys. Whose likeliness, whose face and inscription does it have? They said, Well, Caesar's. He said to them, Well, it's got his face on it. Render to Caesar the things that are his, and to God the things that are God's. And when they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, and they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling in his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is no resurrection. And I suppose this is referring, of course, to a more broad resurrection, as in just anyone coming back from the dead because, of course, Christ had not yet uh, returned from the dead. And they asked him questions saying, Teacher Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. 
In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die any more because they are equal to angels and sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is God of the dead. But the living, for all live to him. All live to him. There's no qualifier there. There's no, are you in the club? Then you live to him. There's no qualifier. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any more questions. There's a lot more I'd like to get into. And I think it might be wise for me to save those for some future episodes. Uh, I'd like to, to get into Mark and maybe do a, a brief episode, maybe do a Pop Goes the Doctrine segment on that one. And uh, yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening and bearing with me. I know I'm not in high spirits. I know I'm kind of depressing. I'm a bummer. But me getting back into the Word and really being critical and really... Just asking God, please tear down this barrier that I have built in between myself and you, the divine, the love, the source, the force, to borrow some Star Wars lingo. Um, But yeah, guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope that... uh, that any of this might have resonated with you. And um, I might start doing some more kind of, you know, sermon-ish uh, topics. And I do look forward to getting an interview with Peter Rollins. I can't give you a set deadline on that. But, oh my goodness, talk about fanboy. Like, I'm all about Peter Rollins. And so I can't wait for that. Um, So thank you guys. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. As always, I got to get in my plugs here at the end of the episode. So you can reach me at my voicemail. You can just call, leave a voicemail. It'll go straight to voicemail. You don't have to talk to me or anything like that. It'll just go straight there. You can leave a message, and I promise you I will play it on the podcast. The number is 612-460-0364. If you have anything you'd like to disagree with me on, 
any encouragement i could i tell you i could appreciate some encouragement right now honestly guys um if you just want to say that you appreciate the podcast or you have recommendations for the podcast because it is still in the early phases and i'm figuring out all the segments and everything i've got the segment with with my father pop goes the doctrine uh, i'm trying to work out a segment with jay baker um so yeah just any feedback any feedback at all i would more than appreciate it and it's such an easy call just call me up go to voicemail leave me a quick message and guess what you'll be heard on the podcast also you can go to uh my itunes page just search air of grievances h-e-i-r of grievances you can also go to soundcloud.com slash air dash of dash grievances. I have a website now. You can go to airofgrievances.com and check out my website. And I, I do have links to all of my different episodes on there. I update that regularly. Um, I also have my Tumblr account set up. It is tumblr.com slash blog slash air of grievances podcast. Of course, facebook.com slash air of grievances. Please give me a like. And you can get involved in the community there. Uh, I'd really like to get some dialogue going back and forth with the listeners and just get this. I think discussion is so important, especially at this phase, uh, this trans kind of transitional phase of the Christian faith. Um, I have to plug my home church, Revolution Church, with Pastor Jay Baker. He is, I can't say enough about that guy. He is a lifesaver. He is the best pastor I've ever had. The most honest, open, generous, giving pastor that I've ever had. And please, please, please feel free to donate um, if you can, and if not, just listen to the episodes. They're great. They're great, and they're uh, updated weekly with new sermons. Also, my Patreon, patreon.com slash Grievances. I also have a YouTube link. It's a little bit long, but you can find that on my show notes. And I do have a, uh, a Wally Olson, who was a minister up here in the Minnesota area, and he was a little bit of an inspiration for me to come up here along with wanting to get involved with Revolution Church, which I'm just so passionate about. I think it is so, so important. And so please share it with your friends. Tell your friends about Revolution Church. And and please just listen, rate, subscribe. Um, after that, if you have time, please feel free to do so on my uh, iTunes account as well. I'm now also on Twitter on uh, H-O-G underscore cast. So H of grievances underscore cast, um, which is capital H, lowercase O, uppercase G underscore cast. And you can follow me on there. I post new episodes. I, uh, you know, I retweet Tweets from Jay Baker, Peter Rollins, Rob Bell, you know, a lot of the very influential uh, modern Christian voices in the, uh, in the church right now. So in the modern church. 
So yeah, guys, thank you so much. I love you all so much. And thank you for your support.